Church, we've got a job to do, you and I, during these days of pandemic and shelter in place. My thoughts have turned toward the mission of the church. Jesus put it simply, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. That's sort of inclusive, right? Doesn't leave anyone out. You and I have a responsibility to carry the message of Christ into every corner of the known world. How are we doing that? How are we advancing the mission and the purpose of Jesus during these days? You might think it would be a good time to pass over it, right? Talk about something else. How to survive the pandemic, how to, how to take care of your health, how to uh, watch after your financial life, how to survive boredom, how to survive killing your spouse, something like that. I wanna drill down on the mission of Jesus because these texts in the next few weeks from the lectionary take us right there. And it's something that's not context dependent. In other words, it can happen in our lives all the time. So we're not off the hook because we're in quarantine. We're not off the hook because movie theaters are closed or we can't go to the gym. We have a responsibility right here and right now to advance the purpose of Christ. It happened spring of 2020, the same way it happened when Jesus was here physically on the earth. And the transition point intersects in the opening chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter one takes us to that place. Some call it the birth or the pre-birth of the church. In Acts chapter one, verse three, it says that Jesus, after his suffering, presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Between the time of the literal physical resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven, there were 40 days. And during those 40 days, he showed himself physically to the disciples. And he talked to them about the urgency of the message of the kingdom. Where we pick up in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, disciples are gathered together with him and it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? So maybe on day 38 or 39, they were beginning to get the idea, okay, we get it, it's about the kingdom. So are you going to initiate the kingdom now? You know how the disciples thought about this, right? You know how James and John pulled Peter off, or pulled Jesus off to the side one day and said, hey, you know, when you set things up, when you establish the kingdom, we've been thinking, how about this? How about one of us sits on your right and the other on your left? And Jesus told them then, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. You misunderstand the concept of the kingdom. It's a misappropriation of power. And that's the first thing for you and I to see about the kingdom of Jesus. And our responsibility is the power that comes with it. They were looking for it. They wanted it. They wanted strength. They wanted to advance. They wanted everything fixed right here, right now. Your kingdom come. Verse 7, he replied, it's not for you to know the times or the periods 
that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up in a cloud took him out of their sight. Just like that. Jesus out. These were his parting words. This was the last thing that he had to say to them. You've got it wrong. I'm not setting up the kingdom now, but you will get power. You'll receive it when the Holy Spirit comes. But the power is not a power to be misappropriated or to use for our own sense of good or gain. The power that Jesus would bestow on them through the Spirit was a power to serve others, a power to bear witness to what we've experienced in the person and presence of Jesus Christ. And so he said, you'll be my witnesses here. And he laid it out in concentric circles, starting in Jerusalem, map dot, out from there, all Judea and Samaria to the north, and then the third circle to the ends of the earth. That doesn't leave anything or anyone out. Jesus called them, and he calls us, to a progressive advance of the kingdom of God through bearing witness to what we've experienced. Think about that word. What is a witness? Someone who observes an accident is a witness. Why? Because they saw what happened. We are witnesses to the ways in which Jesus Christ transforms a life from the inside out. Our lives are the story. That's the narrative. That's what we have to bear witness about. This is what Christ has done for me. So much for talking down to people. So much for trying to argue people into the kingdom or trying to convince them by many demonstrations of proof or of power. This is about simply telling another human being what you've experienced in Christ. The most simple message some have described as one beggar telling another where to find bread. This is how it's worked in my life. That's the kind of power that we wield. And what you and I need to understand as Christian believers is that each of us possesses this inherent power because we've been gifted by the Spirit of God. Each of us differently, and the expression of which will look different in each one of us. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.10 that each one of us should use the unique gifts that we've been given for the greater good. That's our responsibility. Who are you as an individual? Where is God powerful in your life? How do you experience that power in relationship to other people? It's not a matter of dominance. It's more a matter of energy. Where is God strong in you? Where are you highly developed, and how can that be utilized for the good of others? The church has always been about power, and it's always been about prayer. Well, they stood there, looking at one another, looking up to heaven, and realizing that Jesus was now gone from them. What would they do? 
verse 12, says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, just a short walk. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. And we're going to stop there right in the middle of verse 14. They went from the retreat center at the Mount of Olives to the prayer chamber of the upper room because this was their calling. This was their mission. The church has always been comprised of people who pray. Jesus demonstrated that for them. He gave them a tremendous example to follow. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 32, it says, That evening at sunset they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. This they were literally bombarded all night long, and Jesus held this massive healing campaign. And it says in verse 35, In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. I think he would have deserved a pass, right? That was a pretty busy evening. But undeterred, Jesus, perhaps nudged in his spirit, was up before the sun, out behind the house, in a lonely place. Luke tells us that often Jesus would withdraw to lonely places to pray. And he taught this lifestyle to the disciples. He said, hey, come away with me to a quiet place, away from the crowds, and let's pray. There's this work-life balance that we observe in the mission of Jesus that he entrusted to the disciples and that he modeled for them. He was busy. He was engaged. He was with people. He was in the midst of the fray. But then he was in the closet of prayer. And the disciples apparently picked that up. Because in verse 12, post-ascension, Jesus now gone from the scene. Hey, guys, what do we do? We can't go fishing. That bridge is kind of burned. Let's go to the upper room and let's gather together and pray. Jesus demonstrated this so many times during the gospel record. An interesting one in Luke chapter 6, before Jesus chose the disciples. It says in Luke 6, 12, Now during those days he went out to the mountain to pray. And he spent the night in prayer to God. A, a restless night in prayer. In verse 13, When day came, he called his disciples and chose twelve of them, whom he also named apostles. 
God the Father confided in Jesus the Son about which ones he was to choose. Could you see the dialogue that night in prayer? Jesus going back and forth. What about Peter? Well, he's got, he's got such a temper. He's so, he's so volatile. And what about Matthew? I mean, you, you know Matthew's background. You know that he was a tax collector. He was probably a little crooked. I, I don't know. What it, Judas, this guy, man, he seems really ambitious. Jesus has this conference with himself in the overnight hours, at the end of which he chooses the disciples. So he models for us, he demonstrates for the church how the mission, the mission of the church is fueled by the prayers of the saints. It was in Jesus' day, and that's the model. That's the template that he offered to the disciples and by proxy to you and I, the readers of the New Testament. This is the way that it was. I wonder about your prayer life. Just raising the question makes you uneasy, doesn't it? I don't like to think about that because we think of prayers in terms of Wrong or right, we've got it or we don't. We know how to do it or we don't. We're uncomfortable. Take some, take some counsel from Mary Oliver, one of our great American poets. She said in her poem, The Summer Day, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? I don't know what prayer is either. But I'm learning to pay attention. I'm learning to develop and cultivate the spiritual side of myself, the inside that God is calling me to expand and to grow. What does prayer mean? I don't know. Let's figure it out together. Prayer's nothing more than a conversation between us and God. Just like I'm talking to you right now. Sometimes I raise questions. Sometimes I say expressive things. Sometimes I pause. Sometimes I stumble. Sometimes I don't say anything at all. All of that is what a prayer is. And that's what God is calling us to do. That's what fuels the mission of the church. It's power and it's prayer. And according to verse 14, the fuel of the church is certain women. Listen again. All these were constantly devoting themselves to to prayer, all of these who? All of the remaining 11 disciples, right? 91.6% of Jesus' disciples worked out for him. Those 11 were there together, it says, with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. That refrain, certain women, has been reverberating around for me this week. Probably because it includes Jesus' mother. 
She was there, we know, at the crucifixion. She also was a follower, but it wasn't just her. And, and Jesus' nuclear family, his brothers and his mother were there. But this phrase, certain women. The book of Acts is written by Luke. The book of Acts is volume two. The gospel of Luke is volume one. It's a seamless whole. And Luke introduced for us in chapter 23 of his gospel these certain women. Luke 23, beginning at verse 49. It says, But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Present at the crucifixion of Jesus, along with his tormented and conflicted disciples, were a group of women disciples who had followed him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Fast forward a few verses to verse 55 of Luke 23. And there we see the women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And Luke 24 and verse 1, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb. Who came to the tomb? The certain women. These women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, these women who were also disciples of his, were present at the crucifixion, were present at the resurrection, were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And Jesus says to them, you'll be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. You are to bear witness to what you've seen. The call to discipleship is not gender-specific. Shame on the church for ever having made it so, for making it only possible for men to rise to certain positions of leadership or prominence within Christ's church. It never was the intent. Luke had a certain propensity for pointing this out. In his gospel, he tells every story that involves a woman many of which are not recorded in the other Gospels. In Luke chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him as well as some women. There they are again. He names them Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and in verse 3, many others who provided for them out of their resources. These were not tag-alongs. This was not the kitchen crew that was doing meal preparation for the men disciples who did the real work of the kingdom. These were joint heirs with Jesus, followers, disciples. And what does that say? In a, in a patriarchal culture like we have in the ancient Near East, how much more liberated should we be in this day? How much more should we be looking to our sisters for ministry and mission within the church? It was so then, and these certain women became the fuel for the church. It says they provided for him. Jesus allowed himself to be supported by these women of means. 
They were real disciples, real contributors, and they made an impact in the early church. And so we see that the mission is fueled by power, absolutely, by prayer, of course, and by certain women. Let's find our place in the unfolding narrative. As the gospel story advances from spring into summer of 2020, corona whatever, let's get after it. Let's do it. Let's empower men. Let's empower women. Let's empower children. Let's see the greatness of the kingdom unleashed in our times. An advance of compassion, of joy, of healing grace, of prayer, unlocking and opening a potential unlike we've ever seen before. Join with me as we pray. God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the cause of Christ that we've been entrusted with. God, give us courage to do not only what we've always done, but exceedingly, abundantly beyond what we ever thought was capable. God, raise up our sisters. Empower them in ways that are unprecedented in these days. God, maybe the calling on the life of a, of, of a woman in our midst, a calling to, to a vocation, to a career of gospel advancement. God, burn in her chest. 